A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to a new series of A Brush With, the podcast in which I talk to artists about their influences, including those from the worlds of literature, music and of course art, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With Tess Jarrett, who for more than 60 years has relentlessly explored pictorial and architectural space through abstract painting. Tess achieved notable success early in her career, but only now is she gaining the recognition that she's long deserved for building one of the most singular and consistent bodies of work in recent British painting. Steeped in the history of her medium, she balances hard edges and precise handling with a distinctive colour sense that lends it a powerful emotional resonance. Tess was born in Vienna in 1937. Her parents fled the Austrian capital for the UK to escape Nazi persecution, and she grew up in rural Worcestershire in England. Many of her family died in the Holocaust. Tess studied first at St Martin's School of Art and Design in London and then at the Slade School of Fine Art, where she'd go on to teach for more than 30 years between the late 60s and the late 90s. Her early paintings helped mark a profound shift in British art at that time, when the influence of art from New York came to the fore after decades in which European and particularly French artists had been the benchmark. Tess's work can be viewed as a fusion of European and American abstract sensibilities, but there is much more to her art than the abstraction of the global north. So while one can see shades of the minimalism, op art and colour field painting that dominated the artistic discourse of her early years, there's a deep relationship with earlier art and one can also detect architectural and decorative elements influenced by her experiences of North African and Middle Eastern architecture. From the start, she attempted to respond to the built environment. She takes architectural structures and elements and creates distinctive painterly compositions that invite the viewer into the space of the picture while reaffirming the two-dimensional nature of her surface. The effects of this are inevitably complex. On the one hand, there's a clear attempt to evoke an emotional experience in the physical world, but on the other hand, there's an engagement in the particular properties of painting, how her colours connect to create that space and how they prompt responses in themselves. She's profoundly aware of how colour and shape can lift forms beyond their place on the canvas, how they may hover or oscillate, transporting the viewer. In some works, she's combined a painted surface with paper incised with laser-cut patterns, adding a relief element that, again, provokes a sense of movement that disrupts the viewing experience in unexpected ways. As you'll hear, Tess's experiences in Italy were hugely formative, whether that's in the form of Renaissance or Baroque architecture, or the great painters of the 15th and 16th centuries. Her work is the result of intense looking and absorbing of these cultural forms, not just the grand spaces, but their minutiae. She might take an architectural detail, for instance, and transform it through isolation or repetition, as she did with patterns on Syrian mosques in her series Citadel. She's also zoomed in on particular facets of the compositions of great paintings, as she did in a recent series responding directly to the work of Piero della Francesca. Since the mid-80s, Tess has completed a number of commissions in public places. In these, she's created paving designs that bring the patterns common to her painting into compositions on a vast scale. They include the concourse of Victoria Station in London and a series of dramatic paved terraces around the cathedral in the city of Wakefield in northern England. 
In these major works, she was able to bring her concerns with pattern directly into three dimensions, not just evoking architectural space, but creating it. And it's with this idea of space that I began our conversation. As I say, whether pictorial or architectural, it's been the primary concern of her work. Did she intend to make it her central subject from her earliest years? I think the answer is actually yes, but I wasn't particularly aware that that's what I was doing. You know, if somebody had said to me when I was very young, you know, what are you dealing with? Are you dealing with space? I don't think I would have said, oh, absolutely, I'm very aware of that, because I wasn't. Obviously, there are sort of key moments where you experience certain things which make you think about space in different ways. Did you know that you could in a way, create this really interesting dialogue between architecture and painting? Were you confident that you could bring them together in the way that you have? I don't think so. I think that's something that happened organically, really. I've been working so long, it's quite difficult to actually remember back to the really early (laughs) days. I mean, you know, was I always interested in architecture? I think the answer to that would be yes. Therefore, it was already, to some extent, part of my vocabulary. So I would say yes, but not in any defined or deliberate way. I didn't say I'm setting out to create space. It's just that without space, there never seemed to be anything there. And I don't know if that applies to other artists' work. You know, there's so many other things that are also important. So I would say for me, that's always been very important. And I suppose for a lot of painters, the bare canvas or the blank canvas is an intimidating prospect. For others, it's a possibility. Which is it for you? It is intimidating. It is intimidating partly because, of course, nothing is more wonderful than, than a large, bare, white canvas. You know, it's got, it's got a great beauty. And the minute you put a brush mark on it, it seems to be diminished. And then you have to somehow find some way of bringing it back to its early beauty when there was nothing there. (laughs) Is the early stage of a painting by you much rawer or much looser than the final product, if you like? Or, Or are you immediately wanting to create the hard edges and so on? Well, I do a lot of preparatory work. I do a lot of preparatory drawings and also with paint. So I think once I actually start the finished work, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I know what I'm aiming for, ultimately. And no, I think I I wouldn't want any, any real roughness. For me, that would interfere, because it would be, an, in some ways, a more interesting thing uh, than just a straight edge. In itself, a straight edge is not a very interesting thing. So, you know, you have to use it to create space and make it interesting. In the early days of your painting, masking tape was a new phenomenon, a kind of new technology. And I think that's something that gets forgotten about the 60s and why people were painting hard edge painting so much. It was because there was a new technology available. It's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I mean, you know, it seemed incredibly right. I mean, now it seems ridiculous, of course. But at the time, it seemed quite radical, this wonderful new tool, because you can't actually make a straight edge just by hand. Not really. You do need a bit of help. Okay, you know, there were rulers, but masking tape radically altered 
I would say, the vast majority of artists' work at that time. I mean, I haven't done that kind of research, but it might be worth doing at some point to say, what was this artist's work like before? Yeah. And I suppose that's that thing of, with masking tape, you could confidently paint over the tape yes. knowing you had a straight line yes. as opposed to having to paint up to the tape and having exactly. to do a certain tentativeness. Yes, exactly. So it was a wonderful tool, really wonderful. And I think, I would say the majority of, of non-figurative artists, anyhow, started to use it. You know, when artists are presented with a, a wonderful new tool, I mean, I don't know when the first brush mark was made, but it might be worth finding out because cave painters, I don't know what they what they use. What did they use? Well, you would imagine it was an inscribing tool of it some sort. It would have been an inscribing tool of some sort, but still there was the filling in that yeah. they had to do. But it may have been fingers or... It, yeah. Yes, exactly, or, or handfuls of, yeah. of paint or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to talk about your particular sense of colour because it does seem to me particular. I'm not saying that you have a trademark palette, but it seems to me that whether it's hard one or instinctive, have arrived at a very particular kind of series of colour relationships that you explore in the work. Well, that's very nice to hear. I think that would be the intention. I think that is one way of talking, you know, about what you're in the painting, about what you're doing. The way I arrived at nearly all my decisions was fairly well not initially thought through. I'd, I've always liked to solve problems with a tool in my hand of, of some sort. So I've, I don't think that I've ever started a painting with a brush and no idea of what I'm doing. So I, there's a lot of practice that goes into it, you know, and, and, and the end result is often a big pile of drawings before I even get started. And can you ever look at a colour in the real world, see a sky, see a surface of a material and say, I want to achieve that colour, or is it much more complicated than that? Well, it's more complicated than that, but yes, that, that does happen. But of course, there is no such thing as a colour on its own, really. Colour is a question of relationships. So you have to look for those relationships. And to actually mimic the relationships in the real world is very difficult. And did you, or have you, or do you, look at colour theory when when you make paintings as in when you went to art school for instance yeah. Joseph Alba's interaction of colour would have been a very prominent language of, for discussing colour at that time was that in your mind or are other colour theories sort of prevalent I, I've never really been interested in any kind of theory as to making art although there's certain things you have to know you know if you put red next to green then you know, you're aiming for something. Maybe you're aiming for great differences, but maybe you're also trying to get the tonality the same. It's not planned out, but along the way, you just make many discoveries and then you want to build on them and ask yourself, you know, what's happening here? You don't always get a direct answer because the language is different. Absolutely. You know, we're not using words, we're using brush and paint. Is, in a way, the process of painting aiming for a fluency there in that language, as in a fluency of forms or, or colour relationships and so on? It strikes me that it very often seems out of reach and beyond lots of artists' grasp a lot of the time. That's the whole point of it. Yes. Now, you do start with ideas. Of course, you do ideas of you know what certain colours will do next to each other. But the minute you actually start using those ideas, then they force you to change. So, you know, you think, right, okay, let's go back to red and green. You know, they are complementaries. How do you want those complementaries to work? Do you want that to be recognized? 
So if there is any theorizing, it comes along the way with what you've done untheoretically, then you have to ask yourself questions. And that's quite interesting, of course. I'm sure. Tell me about your public projects, because it seems to me that it must have been an extraordinary thing to go from the studio and the canvas and screen prints and so on, to then enter into the public realm and create three-dimensional spaces and work directly on Victoria Station and the plaza in Wakefield and so on. How much did it affect you when you went back to the studio? That's very difficult to answer. I don't think it did affect me very much. I think it's the other way around. I think that, you know, the painting really prescribed the direction I was going in. But of course, you know, it it is a very different thing working in the real world because you do have to take account of being in the street or having houses either side. You don't have the quietness and and the limitations of, of a studio. And I loved it. I mean, I, I did love doing that. I haven't done one for a long time. But it's a special thing, I think, having to take account of the context, whereas in the studio, there is almost no context. The only context might be the last few paintings you've done. So you either want to continue and better them or you want to move on to something quite different. And of course, there's all sorts of relationships that come with those projects as well, yes. aren't there? So was the collaborative experience a shock in a way after when being When you say painter? collaborative? Well, in the sense that you're working with engineers and, and, and I, I guess architects. I absolutely loved that because, you know, what that did was it made the whole thing bigger. And everybody, if they put their mind to it, has an opinion about that. And, you know, working with people like builders and so on, you know, initially they thought, you know, this is a very silly thing, you know, who's this silly girl? And then they got engaged and that was tremendously rewarding because then it turns out actually, yes, when they think about it, everybody has a view, you know, don't use these kind of bricks in this kind of context, you know, and why do you want concrete here and there? So they were thinking about it. So it became really, they all became collaborative projects in, in the end. And I learned a lot from those people. Absolutely. And is it right you were also sort of having to make decisions about grout and things like that? These, these oh, sort yes. of minutiae of, of I had a, a long period when I was obsessed with the grouting. <laughs> and I can still remember one meeting with the builders and I asked about the colour. I said, you know, what sort of colour can I use? In the, because it's very important, you know, the, the colours in between the bricks. He said, well, you can have any colour you want as long as it's grey. <laughs> So that was, you know, that was being brought into reality. Right, absolutely. And that's true. You know, you if you look around, you won't see any colour. And if, you know, in, in the real world, and if you do see it, it can't last. Absolutely. Because it all, you know, gets walked on. You alluded there, you talked about references to a silly girl and so on. To what extent has being a woman and a painter, particularly in the environ which you grew up, the milieu that was in London at the time that you were studying and so on, to what extent... Was it a disadvantage to be a woman? Did you have an extra struggle to make your work be taken seriously in a way that it was a given for your male peers? Yes, I think that there has always been that element. I think it's still there. I think you do have to prove yourself. I think you sense that you really have to know your subject and you have to know it at least as well as the workmen do and perhaps even a a little better. doesn't mean to say you have to learn how to build a brick wall, but you have to recognize the abilities and the talents that these people have, and often it doesn't get recognized by the world. You know, I don't think that builders who build a particularly good wall or get their just desserts, if they've done a really good job, it affects 
everybody that walks by it or on it. And I would be surprised if people said, you know, I really enjoyed walking over your paving. I think that, you know, people just take it for granted. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Right. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? I can't actually remember those that I loved before I went to art school. Although I would say probably they were all figurative and there would have been some narrative there as well. So I came on to, you know, looking at non-figurative work later because, is it more difficult? I would say in my view, it probably is more difficult, but of course we only have to get a figurative artist here to to have an argument there. I wanted to ask, I wondered about Cezanne being an early influence because I've seen you reference him a, a number of times. When did Cezanne's importance Well, you know, I went to the Slade and Cezanne had always been a very important figure at the Slade. So that's where I learned about Cezanne. And once you've learned a bit about Cezanne, you can't ever forget it because he, he knew so exactly what he was doing and he achieved it, you know, with such a, an apparently light hand that very few artists have come to that level. When you were growing up in Worcestershire, yes. I know that you were making responses to the landscape. You were drawing and painting in response to that yes, landscape. that was when I was very young. Did you have artistic examples that you were referring to, or was it just a completely instinctive need to respond to that landscape? I think it was completely instinctive. You know, my parents, who were very civilised people, but art was not at the forefront of their interests, and the landscape where I grew up in Worcestershire was so spectacular that I think you'd have to be a real dummy not to be able to respond to it in some way or another. I read something where you very beautifully described the colours of the earth at different times of year. Yes, well, especially around there because a lot of the earth was red-based. You know, I don't think I looked at that, particularly when I was a child. But once I started to look more carefully, then it is a wonderful thing to see that the earth we walk on changes colour wherever you walk. So, you know, there are a lot of things that you absorb, but you don't actually recognise you've absorbed them. In fact, you think you were, now, you were clever enough to always have known that. <laughs> <laughs> Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Fewer than I used to. Because, of course, they're all absorbed. But I think in the end, it always somehow or other it comes down to Piero. And I don't think I can quite explain why that is. I'm certainly not alone there, because I think probably a lot of artists would have, would have said the same. There is a kind of ease of presentation, a complexity that's presented a simplicity. The colours are absolutely unique to him. There is nobody that competes in the end. One always comes back to Piero. And he made a whole body of work very recently, very directly in response to his work. Yes. Was it intimidating to take on that subject or was it just a joy? <laughs> I would say it was a joy because, you, you know, you, you don't see people like, you don't see geniuses as competition. You know, they, they, are, they are models. And there are a few artists in the last five, six hundred years that have never been surpassed. And this is not a period for surpassing those artists. Perhaps it's easier for a figurative artist. But I can't really think of very many that could put their work up 
next to Piero and, and be a real competition. So basically, effectively, you took hold of key works by Piero and you found particular details in them, often architectural or structural. To me, it's really intriguing what you decided to leave in and what you took out. And I imagine that must have been a bit of to and fro in your, in your decision-making process. It's very difficult to pin down when a decision is made. I think to some extent it's a question of noting that you go back to look at something again and again and you can admire it or not admire it, but it doesn't leave you. It's very, very difficult to know what those forces are that that push you to that. And when you took those particular works and you isolated certain elements, did you have to draw out the whole composition first or did you know before you were taking it on? I knew by looking, you know, it happened by looking. And I suppose I would have been too lazy to have drawn the whole thing out in any case. And how can you do that? That that would be very, very difficult. Um, and then, of course, the interesting thing is that you then form a whole series of colour relationships in those works. Yes. And some of them, it seems to me, are very Piero colours, but then others, it seems perhaps deliberately, are not clearly related to Piero's own colours. So tell me I about don't that. remember actually having tried to copy or mimic his colours. I don't think it was the colours per se, it was more what they do to each other. You know, what is next to one colour? The minute you put down a colour and then you put another one next to it, everything changes. You don't know it's going to change until you see it, and then when you see it, you don't really understand why. That's interesting. I guess his colours are just so utterly unique, it seems to me, especially the, you know, the balances of colour, the, the, even the sort of chalkiness in some of the colours. Yes, yeah. yes. I don't think anybody has quite got to that level in the last five, six. I mean, there have been lots of wonderful artists, <laughs> lots of wonderful colourists, but there's something about the subtlety of his work that hasn't been surpassed. Um, another artist who has written so beautifully, I think, about Piero was Philip Guston. And I know that you saw Augustine show quite early on. Yes. And and that was one of those sort of American shows that you saw in the sort of 50s, 60s that, that were of importance to you. Did you ever meet Guston or were you able to correspond with him about Piero in any way? No, no, never. I wouldn't have been so bold. Looking back, of course, I should have written to him and said, I I really recognise some of the things you're doing, and et cetera, et cetera. But I didn't. I mean, Guston, after all, was already very well known and he was, you know, across a lot of sea. So that didn't <laughs> occur to me. In terms of other masters, I know that you went on a pilgrimage to Morocco in the footsteps of Matisse, effectively. Was it the Moroccan paintings that were of particular importance to you? Or did you just feel that that was a means of trying to see the light that he depicted, to see the scenes that he was able to capture? I can't remember that that, if that was why I went to Morocco. Did I ever say that? Well, I, I love the fact that you deliberately went to the hotel where Matisse oh, stayed. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So I did. So I did. And that in itself was a really wonderful experience, especially as they closed it down after I left. Yes, I think that... I wanted to experience what they had experienced, you know, those great artists. And, of course, Matisse has always been, you know, in my view, one of the greatest artists that's ever lived. There are those wonderful photographs of him sitting on a tiny little stool working from something in Morocco. In full dress with a tie. In full suit. dress, absolutely. It suits the whole, the whole <laughs> works, uh, which is quite extraordinary. 
I know that Islamic architecture has been tremendously important to you. Was that on that sort of same trip that was just a sort of soaking up of, of information, if you like, about Yes, it was. I mean, I was, the, one of the reasons I went there was that I'd found it so fascinating in photographs, because it is the nearest place we have to, to being somewhere that is really different really foreign and that applied to everything that you know that applied to the streets and to the buildings and to the people and to the clothes and to the food it was magical that first trip and I think I went again I think I've been twice and now it's too late I won't I won't go again and I wonder how much it's changed and become perhaps more European over, over these years that's also possible I think the Moroccans do, did, I would say probably still do, have a special sense of beauty, actually. Everything seemed beautiful at the time, including the people, you know, they, they, and the clothes, the clothes were wonderful. And, the, you know, the women who had these long gowns, and then you just see the little beautiful feet with beautiful shoes coming out of the very bottom. I've never been anywhere else that had that particular kind of magic. And it seems to me that, in those works where you've involved the sort of card and there are these kind of screens, it seems to me that that was a tremendously important... Card? Where you use the laser-cut paper over the top of a coloured surface. Oh, right. It seems to me that those works seem to relate to those wonderful screens within Islamic interiors, for instance. Yes, yes. I mean, a lot of it probably was not particularly deliberate. I don't think I said I'm going to use the same method. But if you want to do something and you want to look like something, then if it's a good artist you're looking at, that is probably the only way of doing it. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? There are a lot of interesting artists, but most of the interesting art being made, it seems to me, and I may be wrong, but it seems to me it's not painting. I think young artists are so interested in making objects I've seen, and of course, a lot of it you don't actually get to see. You see it online. That you know, they are interested in making things, making references. I don't think there's a lot of non-figurative art being made by young artists, which may possibly mean that it had come to an end. You know, maybe we might have to wait another fifty, sixty years before it comes again, and I won't be around. That's interesting in the sense that. I guess when you're in that world of pushing non-figurative work beyond new boundaries and so on, you are always in the process in some ways of reduction and there's only so far that can go, I guess. That is perfectly true. And often it feels sad that you take this so far, but you can't take it any further. (laughs) Or it's good because, you know, something of the original inspiration still remains because it is, you know, the visual language is a limited language. And, you know, the visual non-figurative language is, is, you know, is even more limited. I think, you know, had I realized that when I was a young artist, I might have avoided it. But it did seem at the time to be the right thing to aim for, to say as much as possible with as little means as possible. But it seems to me also there is, in your own work, a kind of counter-argument, which is you keep finding new ways to say what you want to say. Well, I hope that's right. You have to find a way of moving on, and that's, that's not easy, because anything that you've done before or somebody else has done, you, it's just not interesting anymore. So it's a discovery. Discovery is very, very important, even if it's not necessarily recognised in the final thing by anybody else. Do you have certain strategies in terms of 
how you might get beyond an impasse. For instance, I noticed that you started making circular paintings, roundels. Yes. Is taking a new format on a means of testing yourself in a certain way? I, I don't think so. I think it's more a question of here is this wonderful new world that I've never explored. Let's see what happens. Because after all, with a, you know, most paintings we've looked at in our lives are rectangulars one way or another. So you've got a, a straight edge to relate to. And with a circle, you don't. So that makes it much more interesting. And I think I did worry initially that how is this going to actually support itself? How would it be believable? But I must have found a way because I did quite a lot. <laughs> Indeed. But one of the interesting things is about how you deal with the space of a circle as opposed to the space of a rectangle. And I think you said in the past that you have to deal with it with a certain level of kind of centrality, that the centre always calls you back to a certain degree. Did I say that? Then I think probably it's, it's true. I think it's in a way fairly logical because you do need a stabilising point even if it's only in your head, because you can also say, I want this painting to start two-thirds of the way along, and then you, you know, you may or may not know the reason for that, but then you'll do that. But with a circle, you've got the edge and you've got the centre, and the rest really is up for grabs. While we're on the subject of contemporary artists, I wanted to ask you about teaching. I know that you taught for many decades and that you formed friendships with your students too. And I wonder if one of the underestimated things about teaching is how much it gives back as well as you give, if you like. I think that's true. I still have some good friends who actually were my students initially, because what happens when you're teaching is, you know, you, you are both facing, whether it's a student's work or just you're just looking at it for reference there is a commonality there you're looking at the same thing and you have to think about it and it works on you if you're talking to interesting students and because I was lucky enough to teach somewhere like Slade where there is a pretty difficult entry system they were mostly very very interesting people they wanted to know what they were doing they wanted to know what everybody else was doing and I, I still have friends I made as when they were students A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 150 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Among the freshest additions to the app are the Walker Arts Centre in Minneapolis, US, and the Manchester Art Gallery in the UK. The Manchester Art Gallery joins a host of major British museums and galleries with guides on the app, including the Whitechapel Gallery and Serpentine Galleries, both of which held key exhibitions of Tess Jarre's work in the 1980s. The Serpentine Gallery's guide reflects the breadth of content available on the app, with sections on current exhibitions, including in-depth audio and visual features, as well as historic shows, the full history of the Serpentine pavilions and the gallery's podcasts. To explore digital guides to all the parts institutions download the app today it's available from the app store and google play and you can keep up to date by following bloomberg connects on facebook twitter and instagram i had a glimpse of your studio but can you tell me what you have on your studio wall in terms of reference points and so on? oh my studio here not a lot actually not a lot, because you never have enough wall space. 
you know, that doesn't exist, I don't think, in, in, in a studio. So over the years, I've probably dismantled all the, the inspirational stuff and replaced it with, with what I'm doing. Well, I'm not actually painting at the moment. I've finished the end of that series and I started to write, which wasn't very successful. So it's a difficult question to answer. Would there be anything that you might return to, as in open a book out when you need a certain affirmation of earlier art or, or current art? Just need to open up and see a picture and know that there's still a point to doing it all, if you like. I wish that were true. I mean, it's that, that sounds so interesting when you say it, but it doesn't seem to happen because I think I try and squeeze every last bit out of every bit of inspiration and I come to a point where there is nothing left, even if I, I've been unsuccessful with what comes out of it. But it, it would be nice to be able to do that. But when I've looked at early influences, I do tend to think been there, done that. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? Well, I suppose it's Tate or the National Gallery. I don't go as often now as I as I used to. I tend to go to the Tate when there's something special on, whereas there's always something special on at the, at the National Gallery. So would you go to see, for instance, the baptism by Piero? Would you make a pilgrimage to see that just yes. to pop in? Yeah. Yes, I mean, you know, that if the great works appear, even for a short time. Also, I have a very bad memory, so I forget if I've seen things now, of course, you know. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think when I first started painting, it was all figurative art that I looked at. And it was, of course, all new, and I, and I can't even remember, but I was pretty young. And it didn't seem possible to follow their footsteps. But I suppose in the end, that's what all artists do. You know, we're, none of us are the first. Something close has been done before. I wanted to ask about the impact of those exhibitions of art from New York that happened in the 50s and early 60s. Yes, I mean, that, that really changed painting anyhow across the whole art world. I don't think anybody was left untouched by it. You know, slightly annoying that the Americans <laughs> should have done it first, or perhaps very annoying. You know, those were very serious people. And, you know, if you, if you think of the, the influence that someone like Rothko has had, you know, it's never really gone away. Okay, I don't know whether young artists are looking at people like Rothko still, but I suspect they are. Because, you know, he and Pollock and so on, they were very, very original. And I can't imagine what the conversation must have been like in studios after seeing those shows. It must have been extraordinary, the the buzz, if you like. That, it must that... have been, yes, yes. I don't think we've had anything comparable since, I'm afraid. But then in one lifetime, looking at mine, I don't think you'd expect that. I mean, we don't know exactly what people felt when they first saw Cezanne, but probably something very similar. And then going back, it was very, very different if you go back to the Renaissance. But certainly they were in and out of each other's studios and they certainly stole from each other. And One thinks of Jura in Venice and so on. That's right. That's right. Um, another experience I wanted to talk to you about was your visit to Italy, where you went with a head full of Renaissance painting because you'd been taught by Gombrich and, yes. and had this amazing <laughs> That's opportunity. Right. Yes. But then you saw the architecture about which you knew very little. That's perfectly true. I mean, that was one of the biggest experiences of my life because it was unexpected and truly shocking in a wonderful way. 
And I had never really considered architecture before, but it was a little bit like coming home, you know, because a lot of it felt familiar, even if it wasn't familiar, and very exciting, very exciting. And then, you know, something that's that exciting stays with you. You know, it's, it's, it's always there. And every time you go back, I haven't been now for quite a while, but every time there's more to look at. So, the, you know, the Italians are a particularly talented race, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was it was almost like you completely instinctively understood that the proportions of a Brunelleschi space provided a space of harmony and beauty and like, without having to know the structure and the kind of theory behind it you kind of got it straight away is that is that what it That's was very like? interesting you should say that I've never thought of it like that but actually yes I think you're right it spoke to me in a language I understood and it certainly affected what I tried to do, never really successfully, but it opened the world so that, it, you know, it meant that you looked not just at architecture, but at the space it was in and the space it was contributing to the space. And that's never really left me. And it struck me that when you made the Piero works, they were also about architecture. They were also about Brunelleschi and, and your relationship I with that. I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that architecture... You know, which is, after all, building, you know, and putting things together. It seems to be the essential nature of art, how things relate together. You know, how is it possible to build something quite new or make something quite new in a context that is full of work that's 500 years old? And I think probably quite a lot of artists feel like that. They wish they could do it. We all wish we could do it. Which writers or poets do you return to? Ah, well, it's really boring to say it, and it seems so cliched, but I did get very involved in Proust when I was young, and I did actually read all the way through those 12 volumes, and nothing has quite surpassed that. It's interesting because, you know, the term Proustian is often used to describe art, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. And I can't think of another writer that is quoted so often when people are describing paintings, for instance. It seems to me he's a particularly painterly writer, if that makes sense. Oh, yes, yes. You know, writing is also that, that we have a lot in common. It's descriptive, um, it's evocative. They both deal with colour, even though one is literal colour and the other is not. But perhaps all the creative arts have something in common. You know, you might think, well, sculpture is very different, but I'm not sure it is so different. Proust, of course, is probably most famous for the idea of his connection with memory. That's right. And of course, you work with W.G. Sebald yes. um, on a particular body of work and also referenced his novels in, in other bodies yes. of work. Can you say something about that relationship? It seems fitting in the context of what you just said about Proust yes. in some ways. I was so astonished and moved and touched by his work that I actually wrote to him to say, you know, I was a fan which I think I've never done before, never done since. And to my astonishment, he, he answered, astonishment and pleasure, and we started a correspondence and then we met. And he was an exceptional man, there's absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, he was a terrific scholar as well, He wasn't, but there's something about the work that never leaves you. I mean, I don't think about it much now, but it was a, it was a big force in my work. And not just in my work, a lot of people were very affected. Probably because there is a strong visual element in, in the way he writes. There's nothing thrown in there for effect. It, everything is there for a reason, and it works. And there's that extraordinary connection between 
spaces, whether that's landscapes or or other kinds of and space. places, and, exactly. Yes. Places, spaces, mem- yes. and and that the, their ability to evoke memory. Yes. Well, that was his great thing, wasn't it? That's probably what touches everybody. And he was like that. I mean, he was actually very interesting to talk to. It's not always the case with with writers. Often, all the talent, you know, goes into the work. But you did feel changed after you talked to him. There are a couple of examples of your correspondence with him online. And uh, one a letter to you from him, where he's very playful. And I thought that was lovely. There was a sense of play, intellectual play going on. And and also there's an image you sent to him of St. Mark's Square with a crocodile drawing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I, I do remember that. Well, one can't say he hasn't had his due. I mean, he has become very, very accepted and well known and absolutely rightly so. And with him, you were rather aware there was a fierce intellect there and so on. So he wasn't always easy to be with because you you felt you were a little bit on trial yourself. (laughs) When reading literature, can you immediately make a connection to the act of painting? As in, can painting aspire to the condition of poetry and so on? Not really. I think if something is very good, you forget everything else. You get carried along with with the narrative or, you know, with the style or or whatever. You might say later, you know, I wish I could paint like he writes, <laughs> but I'm sure that's been said said very often. So on the whole, I would say no. Let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? Boringly, it tends to be mostly classical. I don't, you know, I listen to pop music occasionally, but not as much as when I was young. (laughs) I think pop music is on the whole. I'm sure that people say this is absolutely wrong, but I tend to think it's what you first hear and what all your contemporaries are listening to. And also the way I was brought up, because my father had a collection of those records that you pile up. Oh, yes. You know, I don't know if you know that. Yes, machines. those old record players. Yeah, so, yeah. You know, and my father used to joke about it and say, now he listens and, you know, there's no clanking in the middle and he rather, <laughs> rather misses it. Would you choose to listen to a certain type of music for a certain kind of art making, as in for finer detailed making you'd put on certain kinds of music, or is it is it much more random than that? I think it's more random. No, I mean, I don't put on Bartok if the work is particularly simplified or anything. No, I think that it's, again, laziness comes in. If there's, you know, a couple of records or whatever sitting there, now it's pressing buttons, then I will probably do that to get started. Of course, there's a sort of huge connection between music and abstraction. So many of the great abstract painters talked about music and yes. aspiring to that the condition of music. Would you equate the two in the same way that we were just talking about poetry there? Is there an, a relationship between the two? There is say? a relationship. There is a relationship, but I, I don't think you can actually say what that relation is. You know it's there, but they are very different means. But, you know, we've read about music being very poetical or, you know, poetry being very musical. So I think, you know, one's known that after starting to listen. I can't remember when I started listening, except that my father did play classical music every night on those records that that fell down. I think, I suppose that was in the 50s, you know, when I was a child. In terms of that sort of history of abstraction and the kind of theory around it, 
does that in any way become a kind of stifling element? Because there were such grand claims made for abstraction yes. through the ages, in, if you like. And in a way, is that oppressive or does it remain liberating? I think it's neither one nor the other. I think that that's what people will do with any art of, of any interest. I think perhaps I've always been suspicious of any theory around art because it is implying that, you know, if there's a theory, you too can do it. You know, that is not the case, as we know. I'm suspicious of theory because theory must mean that someone else has been through this before you. Perhaps they've thought about it much more, but perhaps I'm not so much a believer in that. I'm a believer in what comes instinctively and then can be adjusted to how the instinct matches what you rather vaguely feel at the back of your mind that you're aspiring to, which you don't recognize until you see it. And that's rather rare. What other media influence your work? Anything like film or other media? I suppose I enjoy, you know, most things, but influencing the work, probably everything in one's life influences it or the other way around. It may even happen with something like cooking, that, you know, if you present a plate of food, you and I may have a menu and we all cook the same things, but we would probably be able to recognize which of us has actually presented it to the diner. <laughs> I just, I mean, I don't know whether that's true. I've just thought of it. But I think we all have a way of doing things. You know, think of how we dress. Okay, we all, sometimes we all dress alike, but it does define us, you know. You know, he's always wearing, you know, these blue trousers or, or whatever. Whether that means that we have more in common or not, I mean, for instance, I actually have a sweater rather like yours. Uh, I don't know whether that means anything. Whether, whether we'll meet up in another world, a sweater world. But, you know, choice is very interesting. Especially with painting, you know, you in the end, whether you're aware of it or not, and mostly it's better when you're not, choice is at the base of it all. You know, why do I choose this colour and you choose another colour? You know, if we were all painting the garden, they would look very different, those paintings. And I think those differences are actually very interesting. Indeed. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? A little bit less now than it was, but yes, I would say for, you know, probably not far from 50 years, I would go into the studio first thing after a cup of coffee and then work, if possible, without any disturbance till midday. And then I never managed to be so productive in the afternoon for some reason. But perhaps, it's, you know, I just got worn out with what I'd done in the morning. Was there anything of the sort of surrealist automatism about that? Sort of somehow the early morning allowed a sort of very direct engagement with whatever it was that you were thinking or whatever was in your subconscious in some way? It's possible. I wouldn't connect it with, you know, anything surreal or the surrealist, but yes, I I think so. But there were also periods when there's nothing. And then, you know, you load your brush with paint or you, you're drawing with charcoal or whatever, and through the act of making, something actually comes. Or maybe it doesn't and you have to work at it a long time. I mean, I certainly don't want to give the impression that I just sat down and did a nice new painting every day, because I didn't. I've always found it difficult. I've always thought it would be a really interesting study to line up paintings by the great artists and, and define who was a morning artist and who was an evening artist. Oh, I've never thought of that. That's very interesting. 
Could you do that? Well, I don't know if you could. It's an, it's an interesting thought experiment because, of course, Matisse was a morning artist. Picasso was a night artist. And, you know, it seems to me that that says something about those two artists, it's perhaps. Certainly, it certainly does. It certainly does. I mean, you know, Picasso, not only did he, but he also was aware of his own behaviour and just thought that he only had to spit and and it was a work of art. You know, he was not, not a modest man, I mean. <laughs> uh, and I suspect that Matisse found making art more difficult. I may be wrong, but everything I've read... I think he did. And I don't think that's why I happen to prefer Matisse to Picasso. I think it's just, just one of those things. I think there's something in the fact that Matisse's harmony was so hard won. I mean, yes. the anxiety that he experienced to to arrive that's at right. what he arrived at. Yes, somehow. I don't think Picasso had that kind of anxiety. I think he just was confident that everything he did was great. <laughs> And he did do a fair number of great things. And he things. did do a fair number, to give him his due, that's absolutely true. But I wouldn't have wanted him as a best friend. No, <laughs> I think that's... Me neither. <laughs> if you could live with just one work of art, what would it be? Oh, my God. Well, it probably would be a Piero. But at this moment, I can't envisage them all, so I can't tell you which one. Not a portrait... What landscapes have we got here at the National Gallery? You've got the baptism and the... Well, actually, if I haven't got a couple of days to think about it, then I'll be satisfied with the baptism. It's a great Because that's kind of got everything, really. It's an extraordinary thing. It is. And lastly, what is art for? Well, if I was clever enough to tell you that, then you could go away well satisfied. (laughs) Um, It is for something. I mean, it's not for nothing. To some extent, you know, it, it reflects what we are. And at its best, it can explain to onlookers what we are and, and what interests us and perhaps to some extent what it means to be a human being. That'll have to do, I think. That's probably rubbish, but there's something in it, I think. <laughs> I think there's a lot in it. Tess, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Tess Jerry is at Carsten Schubert in London from the 16th of March to the 15th of April. Tess is also in this year's Guangzhou Biennale called Soft and Weak Like Water, which opens on the 7th of April in Guangzhou, South Korea. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Please also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producer is Amy Dawson. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Tess Jerry. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.